Welcome back to the Bullsby Bulls fans. Doug Tonus here with you discussing our Chicago Bulls who are coming off a four-game heater, four-game win streak without Zach Levine uh, going into Milwaukee. I'm not predicting a win tonight, but you never know, and I'm sure you'll listen to this after the game. So I'm not going to talk so much about the last four games just because I was on a boat. Yes, I did play. I am on a boat off my balcony while on the boat. Uh, I was on a cruise for the last week, so I didn't actually get to see the games. I did see the uh, the Bucks game with Caruso's uh, game-winning three, or I should say game-tying three at the end of regulation. So that was a fun one. I uh, didn't, didn't see the other games. Uh, so we're going to talk about a few things, mention some of these. They'll be on the big red bus with Fred as well and, and a couple other things. So the first thing I'll talk about is, has the Bulls' win streak impacted anything that Arturis Karnaschovas is going to do? My first thought was like, yes, it might make them more likely to try to win now. And then my second thought was they were always going to try to win now. Like they're always going to do that. These guys do not seem to ever look more than like three games into the future. Like they just don't. They, they don't make future-minded moves. They make moves that help them the most in the moment. It's just all very short-term thinking. And I'm going to get into a little bit why I think that's such a bad idea and to dispel some of maybe the negativity people have around the concept of rebuilding because people think of tanking whenever you were, use the word rebuilding, people think of tanking. Oh, you're just going to be bad for five years and I don't want to deal with that. I also don't want to deal with that, just to be clear. I don't want to be really bad for any length of time. We had an opportunity not to be bad for any length of time because when our tourists kind of show us took over this team, he had a, a, there's just a lot of young talent on it, and there was a lot of options that they could have utilized that to become better, and he just picked the wrong ones over and over and over again, and now here we are. Uh, so I do think it's going to be tough to not be bad for some period of time, but that does not mean I advocate for let's just strip everything to the absolute studs and try and win three games a year, so we have the best lottery odds every time. That, that's a really tough thing to do successfully, and it really isn't the formula that really good teams have used either. Like, generally speaking, I, I think there's, like, some exceptions, and they're maybe a little bit understated. Like, the Oklahoma City Thunder, when they got Kevin Durant, James Harden, and Russell Westbrook in three years, like, those are picks number four, Four and two, if I'm not mistaken. KD was two and the other guys were both four. I want to say off top end. Harden may have been a five, but like whatever. They, they were really bad for a long time. They drafted three stars and then became like an amazing team for a while. Um, you know, so it's, it's not like that's never happened. In a, but again, I'm not suggesting you, you want to be a bad for any length, huge length of time like that. If you can avoid it, you obviously do want to avoid that. Um, and, and you can often sometimes you're bad for a little bit and then you get this great pick and then you become really good because you have a lot of decent kind of talent on the team and then this young player becomes a star and now you have a star to go with your decent talent and whatever. And that's kind of like the formula a lot of these good teams have, have sort of used uh, to move ahead. But uh, we're going to try to dispel some of the myths of like what a rebuild versus what tanking means and why we might want to choose some of these directions. And uh, for those who've listened to the show a long time, probably all of you, because I don't think I advertise at all, so I get like zero new subscribers. So thank you, I guess, one, again, for listening. But then two, you'll know that I have sort of this very mathematical background. I, I work in finance. I tend to view player contracts and assets and everything from an economic standpoint and, you know, look at them from, you know, like 
NPV, net, net present value, uh, net future value, you know, trying to figure out like how things will go in diff- if different ways and different paths. And so when I do that, I think about like the like likely value of any given pick, you know, it's upside, it's downside, things like that. So it's like, for me, all of these things are like ranges of possibilities. Um, anyway, we'll get to all that in a second. So uh, this four game win streak, I don't think it's going to change what Arturis Karnasrovas is going to do. I think he's just going to do the same thing he was going to do no matter what, which is try to add win now pieces by moving Zach Levine. And, you know, there's a question that people are like, oh my goodness, if we do this, like this team is so much better with, without Zach on it now. And I want to remind people, like, this team was a 40-ish win team the past couple of years. You know, they're playing really, really bad now because things are deflated. Zach's checked out. Zach's wanted to be traded. He should have just asked for a trade this summer, you know, and this would have been better for everyone. So it's, it's not like, I mean, do you think this team is better than a 40-win team without Zach? No. So, I mean, we're really just kind of back to maybe does Zach move the needle or not move the needle and I think if Zach had played a different style of game, and, and maybe partially his pers- personnel, maybe partially it's just Zach's mentality, maybe partially it's coaching, I've always said, like, Zach should never take more than, like, two dribbles. Like, he's just not a guy who does great as soon as he starts dribbling the ball a whole lot. And, you know, if you make him a, a shooter, a cutter, and, you know, coming off screens and shooting and, and getting stuff in motion, it's, it's just unbelievable But when you – get the ball in his hands, and he starts trying to go to work on a guy one-on-one. That's where, where things kind of, like, go down, go downhill. Uh, but regardless of that, like, I don't think, know that the Bulls are better without Zach Levine. I think they're better without a disenfranchised, unmotivated Zach Levine, which is the current version of Zach Levine we have on this team today. And so they may be better without Zach right now, but they aren't better than when they had Zach, say, the last 30 games of last year where he basically carried them to their you know, very good record by playing unbelievable basketball. And so if they trade Zach, you got to hope you can convince a team that that Zach from last year is a Zach that is out there. Complicating things are, of course, this injury, which may or may not be an injury and maybe just an excuse to keep him off the floor while they explore trades, knowing that some of the teams highly likely to be interested in him uh, might not be able to trade for him for a while. The 76ers, not until uh, the new year and the Lakers not until January 15th. Not necessarily 100% true, but like like more than likely true that those those things are, depending on the pieces that are coming back. So uh, with that said, you know, who knows uh, where this injury is. But yeah, I do, I do think the Bulls are better in the short term without Zach Levine playing when Zach is demotivated and doesn't want to be here. And so has this stretch hurt Zach's value? I kind of wonder, will other teams look at this and say the same thing? And I like to say, and I said on the Big Red Bus, which this may be posted before the Big Red Bus, said James Harden let the ball bounce off his head and out of bounds and still fetched like a massive trade package. I don't think teams generally are so short-sighted that they look at this stretch where Zach clearly wanted to be out and was unmotivated and say, yeah, he'll never play well again. There's a little bit more risk with Levine than there is with Harden there because Harden was like a bonafide star and Zach is not. And there's probably the people who had questions about Zach's ability before will probably still have questions now. And those questions will probably uh, grow in magnitude in their head. Uh, whereas there's probably less overall confidence uh, that Zach's going to bounce back in the same way. But I do think people will look at him and say like, look, we have evidence over the last three years that this was going on. And I don't think they'll look at his stretch and be like, oh, yeah, he's just this player now. You never know. Uh, it, you know, human, human bias and recent, recency bias is true. So you just never know. But I, I think that is how it would go. Uh, so with those things said, I want to talk a little bit about what I would do if I were the Bulls and why I don't think, or I shouldn't say why I don't think we're going to do this. I just explained our tourists kind of show us 
really only seems to look at what's directly in front of him. He's managing like a guy who's managing for his job all the time, and that's not really a good good thought. He's not managing from a place of safety, which is bizarre given the Bulls' history with general managers. He, he should feel tremendous security in what he's doing, but is not managing like it. So I look at things like this. You, you have to look at things from a... Uh, let's say let's say the NBA was a purely efficient market. Let's ignore players for a second. Say you're the Chicago Bulls this year, and uh, you have uh, 20 wins left this year. Say you could trade those 20 wins to another team for 20 future wins. Now, a team like the Lakers might be like, "Yeah, I'll take 10 of those wins off your hands." <laughs> you know, like if I could do that. Uh, you know, you would trade them, right? Like you know, you're so far away, and and maybe. It's even really expensive to buy a win. Like if you're a bad team, your 20 wins only help that other team for 10 wins or something. So it's, it costs you, you know, you only get a one win for every two you, you give up or whatever. Like it's, it's an uneven thing. You know, you could find teams that would buy your 20 wins for 10 future wins. And if you're the Bulls this year and you're not going anywhere, you're going to miss the playoffs and you're actually going to get a better draft pick by having less wins. That's a phenomenal deal, right? Like you, you want 20 wins next year or 10 win, even 10 wins next year compared to where you are. Uh, and so you want to trade these short-term assets for long-term assets. You know, ignore the individual players. It's about trading, you know, long, short-term for long-term. And so when you look at like kind of like an asset and you look at these players from assets perspective, you look at a guy like Caruso and it's like, all right, well, he's, he's got a year and a half left. There's two playoff runs. We're not going to take advantage of him in the playoffs this year where he'd be tremendously valuable to someone else pretty good chance we're not going to take advantage of him in the playoffs next year either. So his value to us is actually very low. Then he's going to be an unrestricted free agent. And after he misses the playoffs twice, what's he going to do? Now, I do think Caruso is just going to go wherever the money is best because he's not been paid this like ungodly amount of money in his career. So I think he'll go wherever the money is best. But you're going to have to bid on him as an unrestricted free agent. And now he's going to be like 30, a guy who's banged up all the time. Uh, you know, he's like a role player that really helps a, a really good team and you're not that really good team. And all that, like, all, that just doesn't make sense for you. It doesn't make sense for you to keep that type of asset that's way, worth way more to someone else than it's worth to you. And also his value is largely in the short term where you can't even capitalize on that short term value and you're not going to get the playoff value, which would be very high. Like that's a guy you should move. Like, it just makes sense. You should move him. He's worth so much more to other people than it is to you. And so that's like one of these market inefficiencies. Like, you know, you can create this win-win scenario, and that's like the exact type of scenario that teams are looking for when they trade. Like, how do I help you and help myself? And so this is the scenario that, like, makes that happen. And so we should be looking for market inefficiencies all the time when we're doing these types of things. So you take the next guy, like DeMar DeRozan. He's an unrestricted free agent next year. You're probably not on the cusp of using whatever value DeMar has left. You probably don't want to pay him this massive contract given his age. And his value, though, is also maybe somewhat limited on the market because he's not a three-point shooter. Uh, he doesn't do super great with the ball outside of his hands. And so I'm not sure how many teams would be like highly interested in him. And so for a guy like DeMar, maybe you keep him for the rest of this year. Like if DeMar's trade value is like just a second-round pick and that's like all you could get for him, maybe you say, you know what? for the enjoyment of the fans, to have some shot at the play-in, maybe I'd rather have DeMar this year so I can keep him on the floor. Like Because I'm getting so little in value anyway that maybe the actual extra court value is useful. And maybe I do bring him back next year, or I at least want the option to bring him back next year at a, a similar price, and that, that option is worth more than a second rounder for me. And that might be true, right? Because 
I don't think there's going to be a, this super robust market for DeMar because his skill set is so niche and really isn't something that's going to add a lot necessarily to a contender. Now, maybe if you found just the right contender, like someone who had a tremendous defense but needed like some, some extra shot making and offense, uh, then maybe it does fit. Maybe a team like the Minnesota Timberwolves would be an example of a team that's got like a really good defense and could use another shot maker uh, on offense. Uh, they also have spacing problems with Gobert, so maybe that <laughs> really isn't a great idea at all. But, you know, maybe that's like, a, you know, that type of thing uh, would maybe be another, you know, type of thing where he could fit in well. So you'd have to find a defensive-minded team that needs a shot maker, and maybe there's one out there. And if they want to give you like a mid-round first, then maybe you take that. Now, the Timberwolves probably have nothing to trade because of all the stuff they gave up for Gobert, so that's probably a non-starter there. But maybe there's another team that's got like a mid-first-round pick, and then you start thinking like, well... These wins that DeMar may get us this year are not very valuable, and the option to bring him back next year, given his age and likely cost, is not super valuable. And the first-round pick might project into more value um, to that from us. And so the first-round pick you get, it probably won't have tremendous value, right? It's like a high-risk asset. It probably won't have tremendous value, but it will have a chance at having tremendous value, right? Like the pick that drafted Giannis or Kwai, who were both drafted 15th, or the pick that drafted uh, Jokic, those weren't picks that had tremendous value when they were made, but they ended up having tremendous value because you got these star players that you wouldn't anticipate getting there, and that happens sometimes. And so if you've ever invested in the stock market, one of the things you would think about is you want a large portfolio. You don't, the people who do really well and really win a lot, you know, are people who maybe have like not a, a gigantic portfolio, don't play the whole market. That's a very safe, conservative way. But if you want to make a ton of money, usually what you have is a really good variety of long shots. And so, you know, you put like, say, 20 stocks and one of them is Amazon. It doesn't really matter what the other 19 did, right? Like if you bought Amazon 20 years ago, it doesn't matter what the other 19 stocks did if you have 5% of your worth in Amazon. And so that's kind of the theory of having a bunch of these like mid first round picks. Like, yeah, probably most of them aren't going to be really great, but every once in a while you're going to get Giannis. And that's why you just need lots of opportunities. That's exactly what you do when you make these kinds of trades. And so when you get a bunch of mid first round picks, yeah, odds are each one of these picks individually is not going to do anything for you. But if all of a sudden you have 10 of them, odds are that one of them is going to turn into like at least a borderline all-star. And so that's kind of like the mentality of like collecting assets and trying to improve your, your future thing and understanding that you're taking high-risk future assets. But when you have enough high-risk future assets, you have high rewards. There's generally, in like the stock market thinking, risk is correlated with reward. The more risk you take, the more reward you get generally over time. And so if time is on your side, you want to take as much risk as you can because you'll get rewarded the most, generally speaking if you have enough time to let things play out. And so this is what we're thinking here too, is the Bulls, you got a lot of time here, right? You're not doing anything in the short term. You're not doing anything this year. You're probably not doing anything next year. And so you want to start developing these high risk, high reward assets. That's the kind of thing you want to get back because over time, when you do that enough times, that's what's going to land you the players that become the keys to a great team in the future at some point, or at least a really good, young, sustainable team that gives you flexibility to like keep revolving pieces in and out. And this is sort of what like John Paxson did for a long period of time. They, they you look at the bulls over up until they did the rebuild with the Lowry Zach foundation and trade Jimmy Butler. 
This was a team that like went through a lot of like really good players and they moved off draft picks all the time. Like I meant, people always say they hung on their guys too long, like hogwash. Like, they traded Tyrus Thomas, they traded Eddie Curry, they traded Tabo Cephalosha, they traded James Johnson, they traded Nikola Mirotic. They, they were very much willing, uh, they traded Tony Snell to, to move off of their first round draft picks. Um, even Doug McDermott, you know, like maybe they didn't always trade each of them at their peak. But they didn't wait for them to become useless. They're always willing to trade a guy too early rather than too late. Uh, and even Jimmy Butler was a guy like that. And that one certainly went against them. But they were thinking like, yeah, we'll trade this guy too early rather than too late. And, uh, you know, whatever. So, but they built this team that could sustain its asset base. It, it like sustainable assets. They would always get more assets in. They would use those assets. And they were able to kind of maintain this like sort of like, yeah, kind of good in the middle level, always salary flexibility, always uh, chances to make moves. And the, the right move never came out. But like the second they got Derrick Rose, the second they got lucky once, they were the best team in the league record-wise two years in a row. Like people don't actually think about how weird that is. It's like super rare. Like Derrick Rose was also not like LeBron James. He was not like an uber generational talent of immediately in those years was like the top... I don't even think he was a top five player ever in his career. Like even the year he won the MVP, he was probably not a top five player in the league, um, you know, by, by normal senses of the word. But once they got one like legit, say top 10 star player, they were the best team in the league two years in a row. And that was because they had all these margin moves built up over a long period of time to allow that to happen. And, you know, so that, that's kind of like the base you want. You want to be prepared so that when luck hits you, you can take advantage really well. And this isn't to say bring those guys back. I, I think the game completely passed them on. The strategies they invoked and the things they did, they, they worked well, I thought, in the time. There were a lot of philosophical ideas they used that I thought were good. But they, the results ultimately weren't there. And you know, they, the results were getting worse as time went on and their same philosophies weren't working. You know, it seemed like they kind of fell behind like the league meta and the types of players they would chase and the types of moves they were making. Uh, so this is not a plea to bring them back. But philosophically, if you could find the modern version of what these guys did, which was to be good around the margins, to always be young, to always be fiscally responsible, to always make moves that we're not selling out today for a, a murky a murky today, a murkily better today. They weren't selling out the future for a slightly better today. You know, they were, they were, they were patient and they were whatever. So you want, I would love someone that had that same type of philosophy, just was was better at, at executing it in today's environment. And so that really is about doing things on the margins, understanding how you find inefficiencies in the market, finding out what is valuable that you have today that you can offer someone else that's valuable to them that's maybe not as valuable to you, and what you can take back from someone else that does, isn't as valuable to them that's more valuable to you in creating these win-win scenarios. And so the most obvious of those is trade Alex Caruso. You know, I just explained why. To any other team, he's got massive value in the playoffs as well as win-now value. And to the Bulls, that value is, is really low both years, and he's going to be an unrestricted free agent and probably not stay here. It's like just the most obvious thing in the world, and we are probably not going to do it. You know, Damar, if you can get a first-round pick, same thing. Vooch, same thing. I don't know that you get a first for either of those guys, and I think maybe probably not. But if you could, yeah, you should do it. You know, Zach asked for a trade, so I think you, you pretty much are, I don't want to say like forced to trade him, but you really kind of have to move Zach if you can. I think it's going to be hard to rehabilitate his value and make it any higher, so I would look to move him if I could. 
you know, and you see where you go. But you have to be thinking, where are the inefficiencies? Where is the market going to pay me uh, in something that's more valuable to me than them uh, than for, for something I have that I can't fully utilize? That, that's the move. And this, this doesn't mean when you rebuild this way and you get all these assets, it doesn't mean I'm suggesting we should try to be really bad for the next five years. No, we should try to be bad for as short a period as possible. The odds in the lottery aren't so great anymore. It doesn't mean you can't situationally tank. Like we know we're missing the playoffs this year. Yeah, sure. Trade all these guys, get all the future assets. You're probably also going to get a good future draft pick. Maybe next year, if you're like sitting there flirting with whether you're going to give the pick to the Spurs or whether you're going to keep it, you want to be bad enough to keep it again. And next summer, you want to be trying to use all of your cap room if you can in order to facilitate moves to get more future high-risk you know, assets. But you should not be looking to stay in the lottery. I'm not like saying like, hey, let's stay bad until we get a bunch of star players. No, I'm not suggesting that. What I am suggesting is get a bunch of future assets, let them go to work, let those assets build up their value, and then keep trying to make the best moves you can from there. Keep trying to make the best signings, keep trying to make the best fits, keep trying to improve your team. Uh, I, I don't want to tank for the next five years. I don't think anyone else should either, but our asset base is dwindling. And we're letting it dwindle further. We're letting it get worse and worse and worse. We're hanging on to guys who are going to be worth even less by hanging on to them. It's going to make it even more painful later. So there's going to be some pain. I think it's going to take a few years to turn this around no matter what you do from here. But that's some cost. It's already there. There's no way to turn this around. There's no way to take what we have and turn it into a good team. It's not. We're going to have to pay it. So that is what it is. All right. That'll be this. That'll be all for this edition of the Bulls League. I'll talk to you guys next week.